0: All right, guys, our next guest is without a doubt one of the best analysts in this industry. You know, from his excellent work on CBS Sports, Showtime's Morning Combat, alongside the equally lovely Brian Campbell, and also his fantastic live chat, Joe Rogan's new personal best friend, Luke Thomas. Welcome back to your third home when your other homes are being renovated. It's great to have you (laughs) here, man.
1: Uh, I have a COVID-free home in Australia. I am uh, happy to be back, boys.
2: Dude, exactly. People ask you if you've got any holiday homes. You go, hey, I got one here in Melbourne, Australia. And by the way, it's COVID threesome on the way there with a the family. And me and Casper do have a spare bedroom for you ready to go. So just in case you're Excellent. wondering if you need to escape, the, the boat is ready and we're ready to accept you in here. <laughs> but let's just quickly talk about this Joe Rogan ap- uh, appearance, man. I mean, you absolutely deserved it. It was such a great appearance and I know people really, really enjoyed it. Um, what, How was it for you looking back on it now? Can you share any sort of highlights? That stand out in your mind, and would you say that it was probably one of those moments that's going to stick with you for a while? Maybe a personal highlight for you.
1: Um, I mean, it was definitely fun. It was really, really fun. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the interesting part about it was, uh, I-, I remember after it was published, maybe a day after he put it out, I started getting friend requests from people I hadn't heard from since high school <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> I was like, I was like, nah, I'm gonna decline that. Uh, but, you know, in general, it was just it was just nice to get a chance to, you know, obviously be on a big platform like that, discuss some of my ideas, some of his. Um, any portions of the conversation? You know, honestly, we went for three and a half hours. I could have done another three and a half. Um, I don't know if I'll get another opportunity or not, but uh, I'll just say to everyone who watched it or listened to it, rather, uh, either way, thank you. It was, it was a blast, and, um, yeah, it wasn't, like, life-changing, but it was definitely, you know... I think people people seem to seem to get a lot out of it, so I was glad to to get the opportunity. I think it was good, man.
0: I think for us in the MMA media game, it's kind of like uh, we're rooting for you, man. So when we see it's like one of our guys on there, it's just it's just good to see. It's kind of heartwarming. You definitely deserved it, um, and appreciate the, the the kind words and the shout out on it, man. So really, really good to see. Of Before we get to UFC 256, obviously got a couple of things we want to ask you uh, and get your thoughts on. Firstly, what did you make of Yoel Romero's shock release from the UFC? And Dana White sort of saying that, look, it just comes down to roster cuts and it's as simple as that. People thought it was kind of crazy considering how, you know, wild, wacky, interesting Romero is. I don't know if he's necessarily proven draw, but the hardcore fans certainly love watching him fight. Do you buy this reason that it's just roster cuts? Do you think he just had a big fat purse and they didn't want to pay it? Or do you think there's, there's a story in there that we'll find out a little bit more about in the near
1: future? Well, there's definitely a lot that we don't know, right? He has not done some sort of long form interview yet. He's not signed some new place. So there's really a lot of missing pieces. So anybody who's giving analysis one way or the other, and this includes me, if you're listening, you know, take it with a grain of salt. There's a fair amount of conjecture happening here that, um, you know, we'll have to see if it all uh, bears out in the end. I mean, that's not saying it's automatically wrong, but mm. you know, it, there's just an enormous amount of uncertainty about this. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of things happening. You know, they said that he was 44. He had lost, you know, obviously, you know, four of his last five or something like that. All of them pretty competitive. In fact, I thought he beat Costa, but, you know, it is what it is. So it, um, it, I, I understand that maybe they're trying to go younger with the roster. I mean, they want people that are consistently able to get back out there to the extent that they're younger and in some ways probably cheaper a little bit. I'm sure that factored in somewhat. I, I, that's probably real. Um you know, I I've, I said it on Twitter and I said it on the Morning Combat, which was I'm a, I'm skeptical of this theory that the UFC is just trying to get rid of expensive talent, who is a little bit older or whatever. I mean, I, that that I can believe, but that they're going to substitute them with sort of contender series guys and hope no one notices. That that they would, I mean, understand what the UFC has. They have between 80 and 90, let's say 85 percent of roughly the world's elite MMA fighters. This has been measured independently a number of times. And that's about what most experts come out to. There's court documents to this effect. There's other measurements that have happened inside MMA media, but they have the overwhelming majority. Four out of every five usually is what they have per division, give or take. And so do I really think they're going to alter that? Like, they're, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some surprising cuts. I'm sure there's going to be some names where we go, wow, really? Jesus, I didn't think they would do that. You know, Don't get me wrong. There's going to be a few head scratchers. But in general, are they going to really alter that? I mean, this is why I'm expressing skepticism over it. In their modern, mature form as an organization, they never have. They've never shed talent en masse in a way that alters that relationship between themselves and smaller organizations. So I'm just really quite skeptical that uh, overall, again, painful cut here or there, yeah, sure. But overall, we're just trying to go cheaper and then just hoodwink everyone because most fans can't tell the difference. The brand does have strength, but doesn't have that kind of strength. And the last thing I would say is the thing I actually find the most surprising, although maybe not really now that I think about it, but initially I found it surprising, was when you know Bellator was like, yeah, we don't want Anderson Silva. Mm. And then Bellator was like, yeah, we don't want Joel Romero. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, y'all just put on 44-year-old Melvin Manhoff in a fight with Corey Anderson. Y'all all (laughs) all of a sudden are too good for 44-year-old Anderson or 45-year-old Anderson Silver, really? But there's something happening with Bellator right now. Now, I don't know how long term this is. Obviously, I work for Viacom CBS, which is the company that owns the channel that they air on, CBS Sports Network. Um, but I'm not privy to any details. You would imagine being in that relationship, if they had a big enough fight, they could go on Big CBS, which is a huge network, or they could go on Showtime or some of their sports property. But as it stands, they're on Thursday nights on CBS Sports Network, which is a, uh, a an important part of the Viacom CBS family, but it's not their biggest sporting portfolio in terms of their uh, television networks. And if you're on Thursday nights, it's not the biggest night on television. All I'm pointing out is, if you're just doing that for the time being, and maybe they'll go to Showtime, or maybe they'll go to big CBS, but right now in this pattern that they're in, does it make a lot of sense to spend money on Anderson Silva and Yoel Romero, only to air on Thursday nights on not your biggest network? Mm. Mm, I don't think that it does. That's why you're seeing some of the younger guys, the featherweight tournament, blah, 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 that kind of a thing. I think that is where they're at at the moment. So I sort of get that, but it puts these fighters in a you know, difficult position.
2: Mm. This only means one thing, Luke, and that is that Ben knuckle FC is gonna have the most impressive roster of legends <laughs> that we'll ever see by the, by the beginning of 2021. Good question though, man. And by the way, it, it is interesting. Landscape's changing. Um, older fighters who we thought always would have a home in all these big companies don't seem to have one. And yeah, like you said, there's so many variable factors. I wonder what, what, what it's going to end up looking like with the UFC and if they're going to learn a lesson, if they let too many people go and it'll be interesting to monitor. But with Yel Romero in, in particular, is there a matchup that you disappointed you didn't get a chance to see him have in the UFC? Or is it one of those things where like, it's like, this guy's been in the UFC for a while. He's had so many great moments. He's had his title shots, you know, that fight with Israel is still pretty fresh in your mind. Um, maybe it's one of those situations where you're like yeah he's exciting to watch but maybe you know a lot of those fun matchups have pretty much taken place or at least for the time being there's nothing too crazy that we
1: missed out on i would say nothing so much at middleweight which is to say you couldn't think of one but nothing is like there's no like you know khabib tony you know light kind of scenario there him at 205, I think, is a bit of a missed opportunity. Again, you know, I, I don't know exactly the reasons why they cut him. He had three fights left. Um, but, but, you know, you can imagine some permutations of things they could have done there Romero versus Blahovich, Romero versus, you know, even Rockhold back again at 205 or uh, uh, Dominic uh, Reyes or, you know, any of those sort of top guys. There's some fun ways to uh, uh, Anthony Smith. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. Now that John Jones moved up, I think it created a little bit of an uh, opening. So, that, I think, is a missed opportunity, but not so much at, at 185 pounds.
0: Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, UFC 241, he was saying how he would never f- fight John Jones. I think they had a coffee once, and that, that's just too much, not fighting John Jones anyway. No, I think I think they train at Jackson's, and uh, your Romero is that kind of guy. But looking at UFC 256, the people's main event, I think it really is Tony Ferguson versus Charles Oliveira. It is a chance for Tony to sort of bounce back after the Justin Gaethje loss, meanwhile for Oliveira it's, you know, a massive opportunity to establish himself as a lightweight elite. Before we talk about the matchup, where do you stand on, you know, Tony Ferguson uh, and what he may look like post-Justin Gaethje loss? Because a lot of people have basically written him off saying that, you know, he just won't be the same and he's had his peak and it's all downhill from here. Do you think that's the case or do you think it's just a matter of, you know, people maybe not giving Justin enough credit for the way he looked in that fight?
1: Yeah, I wonder. I think it's, you have to be very careful with these kinds of things. And I think I've said this on this podcast of yours. I mean, maybe more than once, there's been a couple times in MMA, maybe more than that, where I looked around. And I was like, ah, I think this guy's done. And then they were not done. Um, there's been some times where I thought they were going to be done and that's exactly what they were. So it's not that it's totally always off, but sometimes it's a little bit easier to tell in boxing when somebody's done. Even then you have to be have a degree of, you know, uh, a degree of, um, uh, humility about your powers of perception. But, You know, in boxing, it's such a constrained universe that if some of the key pieces are missing, there's really no other gear to go to. MMA provides a lot of opportunity for reinvention. Um, The sort of open-ended nature of fighting just gives you a little bit more options. So I want to be very clear about that. That being said... You know, I also did not think that after David Loazzo fought Rich Franklin that he would be different, and he was very much not the same afterwards. And that was one of those sustained beatings. I mean, folks need to understand it's one thing to take a really bad beating, really bad loss, bad cuts, bad blood, whatever, broken face, blah blah blah, but it's much it's much more impactful and has a more lasting uh, effect on a guy when it goes round over round over round over round. Now, this fight did not go between Justin Gaethje and Tony Ferguson the full 25 minutes, but it went pretty goddamn close, and that was a really, really bad sustained beating uh, for nearly the entirety of a 25-minute fight, and w- I mean, that was an assault. I mean, he looked like he'd been in a car crash, tried to get out, and then was attacked by a bear. It was bad. Now, Tony Ferguson... <laughs> Tony Ferguson is very different, though, than your average, even elite fighter. He is mentally, for the most part, we think bulletproof. Um, So you just wonder. It's like, okay, you had this really bad sustained beating, the kind of thing that sometimes can just irreparably change a guy. Uh, And and you're 37 years old, which for that division is not especially young. On the other hand, whatever else happened in that fight, you've been in great shape. You'll probably be in great physical shape for this contest and... We're talking about a guy who has, you know, just a very, very unusual mind. For better, or for worse, a very strong mind as part of that unusualness. So it, it, the question is open, I, and, and nobody knows the answer. We will have to see what happens. I won't declare to you one way or the other. But if you're having a little bit of skepticism about the potential upside given that beating, it's not totally misplaced. Just have a sort of a wait and see approach without knowing what the impact was. And you know, he took about 150 land landed significant strikes. I mean, that was really, really bad. I would say, though, that despite being three rounds, is a little bit better. The interesting part that may work to his benefit is that if uh, there is groundwork, there's less damage involved. And again, that's a space for reinvention. The interesting part that I think benefits both guys to a degree is that Oliveira is more patient than he used to be, um, which makes his offense better because it's more deliberate and strategic. But because of that, it's not so wide open that he's getting assaulted all the time for it, right? Or that uh, he's there's this constant crashing into one another with his opposition. He actually kind of takes his time. So I actually feel like whether Ferguson wins or loses, uh, unless he has been really badly damaged, uh, this is a much better fight for him for his preservation, for his health. For him to see the sort of longevity of a a potential 15-minute fight, Um, this is a great fight to come back to, not only because it's action-oriented, but it's action-oriented in the totality of MMA, not just the way that Gaethje wanted to fight him, which is just heavy punch, step forward, follow with another heavy one that you never saw coming. That's not exactly Oliveira's MO, although he will take risks striking on occasion.
2: It also helps uh, Tony Ferguson that he's not doing just a random weight cut right before the a week before the fight just to prove a point. I think that— <laughs> Yeah, but you know what?
1: Just, did you really, like when on, when the Gaethje fight was over, did you really think that mattered? Like, I didn't get the sense that that—I'm not saying well, it helped. I not know, man.
2: But Isn't I don't know, think Body-wise, a at 37 years old—and this is a question I guess none of us can really find out about because this is something that only Tony Ferguson would know. You'd think that would be a part of his body that just goes, why are you doing this to me, Tony? You know, I've treated you well over all these years. Why are you doing this to me? But let me let me ask you this though, because he he comes a guy that's you know I think it's about three weeks or so that they've had to prepare for this fight. Who do you think has the bigger advantage with a shorter camp? Do you believe a guy like Tony Ferguson that's always doing backflips over the top of tall buildings, or a guy like Charles like Charles Oliveira who's a pretty relaxed dude? Looks like he's he always trains as well all year round.
1: Uh, ordinarily, I would say it would benefit a guy like, uh, Tony, but part of the reason he got tripped up against Justin was because of the change. Now that's a dramatic change, mm. but here's what I'm saying. He was supposed to be fighting Nurmagomedov and then he switches to Gaethje, which they, the two fight in a set in more or less totally opposite ways. And he even acknowledged that after the fact that kind of got him a little bit that they weren't, they would just, they couldn't quite switch gears effectively, to make that kind of an adjustment. So that's a pretty radical change. And I think Tony deserves, it's not, it's not a bad, I mean, no one likes to hear excuses and I don't think that is one. That's a fair point. Like that's a massive alter. Oh, you have to go into a wrestling match. No, now you're in a kickboxing fight. It's like, <laughs> shit, man, those are those are pretty different skills, you know? So um, in this, it, it, but I would say that Tony's well-roundedness um, and the fact that Oliveira is dangerous, but not quite in the, He's just not quite the hammer in the way that Justin Gaethje is. I'm, I'm going to say probably, plus it's a 15-minute fight too, it's not 25. Mm-hmm. I'll say that probably benefits, probably benefits Oliveira a little bit more, but it's almost a wash, to be quite honest with you. Because the way he fights is open-ended in the same kind of way that Ferguson is. Um, they don't have similar styles in that sense, but I mean, they use a although Tony has sort of narrowed the scope of what he uses, right? He hasn't used a lot of wrestling uh, very often in his more recent fights, but when he needs to, he can. Uh, and I think Oliveira follows something like that, right? Not too much striking, not too much jiu-jitsu. I mean, think about what we did with Kevin, Kevin Lee. There was a lot of guard work, marched him down a lot, and then jumped on a guillotine when he had the moment several rounds in, right? He was patient about it. He didn't go balls to the wall. It sort of had this sort of natural progression and march. Um, yeah, so, so maybe Oliveira a little bit. Mm. this is a fascinating
0: fight I remember years ago mm. watching Oliveira at featherweight and um, he just he, you know he didn't have great wrestling he sort of had like you know he, he would latch onto guys really well and he would take their back but like I just thought man this, there's something missing this is when Aldo was champion I thought oh man good luck taking Aldo down and using your <laughs> jiu-jitsu there and then he had you know a whole bunch of bad weight cuts now he's in a new division he's really sharpened up his striking skills he's actually you know quite a threat on the feet um, and I'm curious how you see this one playing out in terms of I guess the scrambles and, and any kind of ground things that we see any kind of grappling with Oliveira holding the ufc record for most submissions in the history and then tony just being a wild man he was more than happy to put himself at disadvantageous positions and that's where Oliveira shines you know just snatching up those chokes you know how do you see this one playing out do you see tony putting himself in some of those wild situations that he's he's kind of been known
1: to do he's definitely going to try and sprawl his way out i think at least initially Right. I mean, Tony is you're right. He plays those dangerous kinds of stick your head in the mouth of a crocodile kind of game for the audience a Mm. little bit, but not not too much if he can avoid it, you know, and like, for example, like I think, don't get me wrong, what you're saying is true, but I think a lot of people kind of overstated at times. If you think about like the Danny Castillo fight with Tony Ferguson, that's a bit of a deeper cut. But Tony was playing a lot of things underneath that guys didn't do so much at the time in which that fight took place. But also, Danny Castillo was just taking him down, and Tony would resist it. But Danny Castillo, for uh, you know, he was a good wrestler in his time. And so, what I mean to say is, you would see Tony do some unorthodox things, and he and, and don't get me wrong, you know, rolling to omoplatas or jumping on <laughs> crucifixes from the back and stuff like that. He has done that, but a lot of times he'll try stuff from positions that people put him in and there it gets a little bit funky. Like, so my point is, do I think he'll try to sprawl his way out of Oliveira initially? I do. Which means I think Oliveira is probably going to go to a second and third order kind of ground attack, which is latching on when they're standing, um, you know, arm drag, maybe situation to get to the back, pressing him against the fence, doing that sort of, da- there's a Dan Her takedown where they, if you guys have probably seen it, where they'll almost stand to the side of a guy and then they'll thread one their their leg over their leg next to him, and then behind the leg on the other way. Aljamain Sterling did that to take down um, Corey Sandhagen. It's sort of a way to like rotate them down to the ground. I think you might see stuff like that. And then it's like I don't know what's going to happen because you know t- don't don't forget Tony's a black belt on the ground uh, in jiu-jitsu, so like he's not some he's not some chump. Like he knows what mm. he's doing down there. But I just mean to say I'm a little bit skeptical that pure wrestling will work for Oliveira. Uh, unusual entries. Not so much imminari rolls, but a like like Tony does, but uh, guard pulling, stand, uh, uh, you know, um, dragging uh, fighters to the ground, um, trying to go for a throw, and then when they brace, try to do like a Dustin Hazlett back take. It's going to take something kind of a little bit, or you know, leg locks uh, to force some an off uh, uh, off balancing leg locks, not just a leg lock itself, but the leg lock that takes you off of your feet, and then going for it, or using that to get to the back calf slicers. I think that's probably what you're going to see Olivera do. To the extent that Tony indulges it, (laughs) I I don't know. It's very much unpredictable. I feel like, as I said, first order, takedown defense, I think will be there. Ground and pound will be there, I think, on top, because we've seen that was uh, successful for Paul Felder. It can be done. Um, Beyond that, your guess is as good as mine, folks. I really don't know. I really don't know. It's going to be a fascinating fight, man. What a great matchup.
2: You're talking about it like that. There's just so many scenarios. And you brought it up before, the pacing. I mean, Olivera's sort of slowed his pace down a little bit. But you know Tony Ferguson's going to go out there trying to get that pace up and trying to get Olivera to play his game a little bit. So it's going to be fascinating. Just quickly, in terms of what's on the line for both guys, what do you see happens here? Let's say Tony loses... Do you think this marks sort of his end as, you know, one of the top guys in the division? Um, If he wins, do you believe that warrants him a title shot? And the same for Oliveira. I mean, I guess Oliveira spoke about this in the countdown. You got Dustin and Conor fighting. Both guys have lost to Khabib. We don't know what's going to happen with Khabib. But do you believe one of these guys can put themselves in a position for a title shot with a win here on the weekend?
1: Well, if Tony wins, maybe, maybe because you're to your point um he'd only be having the one win since the one loss if he gets the win but due to the fact that you we don't really we have uncertainty around Habib and you're right he not only defeated Connor and Dustin but choked them both out and submitted them right so Tony is fresh blood in that sense that was the fight we wanted all along so Tony is a interesting case in the event that he wins in the event that he loses so now Oliveira wins I, you might hear my daughter begging That's on the door I, I i don't yeah, sorry about that. That's I don't right. uh, I don't actually think he will get a title shot. Uh, he'll get close, but you still got Michael Chandler out there. We don't quite know what's happening with him. We probably he's going to be fighting Justin Gaethje. If he gets one, uh, if if they make the Gaethje fight and he wins, does he get it? I, I tend to think he probably would. I mean, here's the thing that like you're asking what both guys get. Title shot, I don't know. Again, Tony, maybe. Jo- uh, Oliveira, probably not. But again, it's possible. But I think there's actually something bigger at play. Like, if Tony loses at 37... It's not that you'd be losing to a bad fighter. You'd be losing to a great fighter in Oliveira. And hello, Justin had you know, gold wrapped around his waist just a few months ago. Uh, but that'd be two in a row, which of course, you know, I don't know if he's even had two in a row since he's been in the UFC at all, um, or even in his career. I'd have to look at the numbers. But you know, certainly that would be a new frontier for him. 37 years old, coming of a bad beating, now losing to a guy. And the guy you'd be losing to is very much improved but at featherweight he was kind of seen as a guy who could do well but was a little bit flaky. Mm. Well, if you can you know, the the good news for Oliveira is that would show that now he has that consistency, but it's almost like Tony in losing would be absorbing the ghosts of the 145 reputation that Oliveira has and I think that would be a bit of a problem for him. So, you know, you would it's like it's like Tyron Woodley. I mean, Tyron hasn't lost to bad fighters but he's consistently lost a good one. So it asks you where you go from that point. And as I mentioned with Oliveira, that would be the most redemptive uh, win. And when I say redemptive, I know he's on a great streak, but I mean from those ghosts at 145, it would be the signature win of his career. It would be huge for him. So there's a bunch of important stakes either way, title shot or not. Uh, And that's what makes this fight so compelling. For a three-round fight, you don't get stakes this big that often, but you got it here. Mm.
0: I think that's a brilliant point about people's perception still being of Oliveira, you know, from years ago. And if Tony beats Oliveira, people might see him that way. Who are we kidding, man? post five press comms, Dana White's going to be like, both are cut. The roster's too inflated. Sorry, boys. So is, so is the yeah, entire like, division.
1: I'm cutting Oliveira. I'm cutting Ferguson. We're going to bring in two Jim Oaks from the Contender Series. Sorry, guys. I'm a little skeptical. That's of right. Figueiredo won in five seconds. He's cut too. damn it. Too much inflation. These guys can fight five times
2: of one night for half the paycheck we're signing them damn
0: it <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about davidson Figueroa versus uh, brandon moreno man for the ufc flyweight belt because uh, man davidson looking to set the record for shortest time between successful title defenses fighting just 21 days apart um, how, if at all, I know you sort of, I know you thought like, you know, the Tony Ferguson cut, that didn't really do anything. Do you think this quick turnaround affects either guys who both got finishes on the same card? You got to think for Figueiredo, it's good to keep his weight down. Do you think that at some point, you know, there's a worry of maybe overtraining, the camp running too long? How do you think it affects things?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one because the weight cut for him, I mean, I'm not talking about on the scales. I'm talking about the next day when he is ballooned up And he is huge, obviously. But what I'm saying is, if you look at Figueredo's body when he's in the cage, ready to go, so this is now he's had time to rehydrate, does he have an ounce of fat on him? I mean, it is shocking how shredded he he is. is. Which is to say, that dude's weight cut, and he did it. Credit to him. I know he messed it up in the first Benavidez fight, but um, he has no margin for error. Like, virtually no margin for error. So, my thought is that with the three weeks, you're right. If he can stay disciplined... From the last pay-per-view to this one, in terms of keeping his weight low, the second cut in short order uh, shouldn't be that bad. But how easy is it to maintain that weight for that long? I I don't know the answer to that. That's going to be a huge thing, I think, to pay attention to. To me, if he misses weight, you know I don't think that's great, and I wouldn't forgive him. But on some level, it's like, this dude can't play with this at all. Like, you just... You have to do to him. It seems like he has to do everything by the letter. And if he does, he can make it. And if one piece of that falls apart, the whole thing uh, kind of—it's like a Jenga thing, right? The whole thing comes undone. So, I guess we'll see. Uh, I just—you know—can you eat broccoli and chicken breast unseasoned for three weeks? <laughs> Maybe you can. But we're gonna—we're gonna, we we're gonna see. Um, uh, I forgot the second part of your question. Was there another one? I think just, like,
0: overtraining. Uh-huh. Like, if, you know, if these guys, are yeah. doing essentially oh, camps back-to-back. We'll yes. back, and also, training at a high level on such low in, – in a calorie deficit, probably not the greatest for your body.
1: Right. Now, uh, again, if you want to lose weight, it's great, mm. you know. And he does want to lose weight. But, I mean, like – Training in a caloric deficit is what you want to do when you're, like, really overweight or something. You know what I mean? Like, not when you have virtually no fat to lose and you're just trying to keep your body from basically normal function, right? I mean, that's really what you're doing at that point. In the case of Brandon Moreno, you know he's got a quick turnaround. I think making weight will be no problem. Um, Remember, his last fight didn't go very long. It was, what, a round, and then they called it, basically. And so I think he'll be fresh and ready to go. I think from a... I think from a tactical standpoint and a strategic standpoint, the quick turnaround won't really be that much of a factor for the weight. I don't think it'll be a factor for Moreno. I guess we'll have to see, but I, I don't have any special reason to be concerned. And again, not declaring to you there will be a reason to, to worry for Figueredo. Maybe, he, maybe he's maybe he got it down to a science at this point. I guess you know um, Friday will tell us. but. That is sort of something I've, you know, got my eye on ahead of time because that is a very, very, you know, it's a high wire act he's trying to cross and maybe he can do it, but we need to see.
2: Mm. And from a strategic perspective, it feels like the quickest way to build a fighter right now is just to have them come back a couple of weeks later and keep fighting. Before it was the whole Conor McGregor, you know, trash talk. Now it's, hey, let's fight every couple of days and build up your name until you <laughs> become a huge one. I'm just wondering, though, with this gamble that Figueredo is taking, um, if he is able to make the weight, if he is able to win, how much do you think it does for his legacy? How much extra sort of star power, I suppose, attention and clout does he get as the champion if he's able to pull this off?
1: Well, in terms of hardcore respect, if he can pull this off, it's enormous. Um, in terms of, like, the casual fan, it doesn't do shit. I mean, uh, w- understand one thing. I-, I don't know if the UFC uses this. My hunch is that they, at least, if they if they don't do it now, they probably have in the past. I know for a fact Bellator has done it because of the lawsuit that they had initially with uh, Rampage Jackson when he went and fought in French Canada when he wasn't supposed to and blah, blah, blah. But there's something called the Q rating, like the letter Q. And... It's essentially a way to measure someone's popularity. And like, how do you measure someone's popularity? Well, there's a lot of ways. You know, uh, Do they have a social media following? To what extent does the press care about them? What kind of search interest is there? You know, what kind of revenue do they generate when they compete on cards and blah, blah, blah? There's this huge number of uh, metrics you can look at to sort of get a sense of what someone's Q rating is. Um, I don't know if they're looking at the Q rating for when they want to cut folks. I, maybe they are. But my point is this. Figueredo beating Moreno does absolutely nothing for his Q rating. That will not change in a subs. I mean, it can change incrementally over time, little piece by little piece, but that won't really change until he fights someone else of a you know significant name and gets a win or has some kind of otherwise memorable performance. So in that sense, it does nothing for his Q rating. And again, I'd be curious to know if UFC is looking at Q ratings for some of these more expensive talents who are kind to pass their prime and you know, their best days are probably not in front of them. Um, maybe like a Romero, it, it, it remains open. But I, I want to go back to the hardcore one. I mean, dude, Figueredo is an impressive guy because if you look at some of his older fights, the Morales fight, the Moraga fight, Tim Elliott fight, you could see pieces of his game being there, in particular on the ground. But even then on the ground, he didn't necessarily jump off the page, right? Like, what's one thing about Figueiredo's ground game that has historically stood out the last fight where he got the quick guillotine notwithstanding? In general, when he gets on top, he is not an aggressive passer. In fact, what's kind of funny is if Moreno finds himself on the ground uh, underneath, and I suspect that uh, eventually he probably will... Um, he's, I think a big, big, important priority is do not spend time there. Cause he'll just ride you out on top. He's not an aggressive passer. He doesn't really begin to open up historically, historically speaking until a little bit later. And then when he opens up, you know, he's a, he can be a devastating finisher. Now that's gotten a little bit better recently. He's just become much more adept at finding these little windows to do the most amount of damage or to find the best kind of attack that works for him. But, um, you know, to turn around and, and beat the guys he's beaten and to do it the way he's been doing it of late and then on short notice do it against Moreno, who I have I think has come such a long way. Dude, that is extremely impressive. I know a lot of folks want to see, you know, it's a shame, right, because Demetrius Johnson is not in the UFC anymore. I'm not saying Demetrius Johnson couldn't beat him. I think if they fought 10 times, each of them is going to win at least once. And Demetrius is built to go over the long haul. I think a little bit better than Figueroa, but Figueroa's punching power is ridiculous. Um, again, he has historically sort of not been an aggressive passer, but now he's finding these windows from the back. And then you saw with the behind sort of the the head gu- uh, guillotine um, to to lock up. He's just become so much more adept, and he's physical, and he's huge for the weight class. So, from the hardcore standpoint, dude, you can't have anything but the highest level of respect. But the Q rating I was talking about, it, you know, the flat flatline. Hmm. Let me
0: ask you this. Who, who do you think was better for the division, Figueredo or Demetrius Johnson? I guess with Figueredo, he's got an interesting backstory, but he doesn't really speak English. Um, and Demetrius Johnson was like very much a company guy until, you know, he felt that they didn't want to pay him what he thought he deserved. And then, you know, there was that whole saga, which is a fascinating one in a sense. You think the UFC likes having Figueroa a guy they can just say, hey, fight here, fight here, fight here, fight a million times. And he'll just kind of do, do, you know, whatever they say.
1: Yeah. And he's probably also one of these guys who's not nearly as hesitant to go to 135. You know, I bet if they offered him an opportunity to go up there, you know, I'm not, I mean, I don't know what they have or haven't offered him, but he just seems like, not just company guy, but like, yeah, I'll I'll try and ride that bull with no training. You know, that kind of cavalier attitude towards risk. They like that a little bit, and I think he's probably much more accommodating. Demetrius was much more thoughtful, whether you liked it or whether you didn't. He was much more thoughtful about the way in which he um, both assessed and then accepted risk in his career. So in that sense, you know, he's probably better for brass you know, what does Brass want? They want talented fighters, but they want guys who say yes very easily and are very accommodating and can do quick turnarounds. It's really what they want. And Demetrius could do a lot of those things, but probably not all of them in the same way that Figueredo could. But in terms of who's better for flyweight, I don't know. It's, you know, one replaces the other. It's kind of a wash in certain ways. I mean, Demetrius was very special, obviously. Figueredo has a long way to go before he becomes that, but... You know, I, I, again, I think Figueredo versus Demetrius would be not really competitive, but I'd probably give a slight lean towards Figueredo to win because re- maintaining dominance at any division is very, very hard. And Demetrius' run was incredible, but it comes to an end for everybody. And so, you know, uh, I think that Figueredo is sort of your newer version of uh, of 125-pound dominance. But, um, you know, does it is there any kind of meaningful difference in terms of how the flyweights will be treated or looked at or viewed by virtue of having Figueroa instead of Demetrius, I, I don't think there's you know any significant kind of change. Also, he has the fun here, so don't forget about
2: that. <clears throat> I call that the Cisco And he effect. can make sushi. Yeah. That's true. Can can uh, Demetrius Johnson cook? That's the big question we have to find out. Just real quick, <laughs> if he gets those couple of wins, um, the two official title defenses as well, it'll make him 4-0 this year. Uh, Do you think that locks in fighter of the year for him in your eyes or do you reckon somebody else is more deserving so many big years – a big year for so many different fighters in the roster?
1: We talk about this on Morning Combat a lot. Like it's kind of funny, right? In boxing, people were not all that active. The higher level guys were not all that active because the promotions didn't get started as –
2: all these kinds of guys. I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <The laughs> was going to ask you if you're okay like, hey, after I saw the news about <laughs> the big exhibition. Yeah, I'm, I mean, like, it
1: doesn't. You know, listen, the the insane clown posse, uh violent Jay and Shaggy, Two dope are rich. We live in a world where they're wealthy. What am I going to do? Fight the ocean? You know, it is what it is. um is. I'll say this for um what the fuck are we
2: talking about? <laughs> I lost. Talking about hairstyles and Jake Paul. Now we're talking about uh, fighter of the year. Oh,
1: fighter of the year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because in boxing, the guys weren't nearly as active. So you kind of have to look at, you know, who had the best singular performance. There's just not a lot of, you know, two, especially that three time elite fighters who are out there. So Teofimo Lopez beating um, uh, uh, Lomachenko is probably going to be your number one choice there. There's some debate about that, certainly, but that's going to be on the short list at a bare minimum. And so you have to ask yourself, what about MMA? Well, Figueroa if he wins against Moreno... Will have four wins, all again, you know, and I guess all of them against lead opposition, although one of them would be the same opponent twice, but, you know, elite both times. But the question is like, is that the most, did he have the single most impressive performance of the year? No. Adesanya beating Costa the way he did to me is the single most impressive performance of the year. And I know that people want to talk about all this bullshit about, oh, he didn't throw his right, he must have been blah, blah, blah. I'm sure he came in not 100%, <laughs> but that was big bank, take little bank to the nth degree. There's one guy who does this in a very cerebral way, and there's another guy who doesn't, and he had zip answers for it. And that is, to me, the most, one of the most impressive performances frankly I've ever seen, certainly this year. But... You know, does 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 Adesanya have the body of work overall that Figueredo does? In, in fairness to Figueredo, and again, we're talking about a world where he beats Moreno. No, he does not. He does not have that. So I would give it to Figueredo. I think just the overall volume is just something you can't ignore. The reason why there's a little bit of a question about it is because, you know, as impressive as the guillotine was on Alex Perez or the two times he slept, or, you know, finished off Benavidez. I mean, these are all standout performances, but they don't capture the imagination in the way that, you know, Adesanya did or Teofimo Lopez did or pick who your favorite fighter is, who had a really big, strong, and impressive win. Still, you got to give a guy credit. You know, he took extra courses and he aced them all. That's your honor student, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think he's definitely
0: worthy of a mention, even if you ultimately give it to Israel Adesanya. Um, before we cut to our final find, that is Kevin Holland versus Jacare, I just want to quickly remind everybody that if you are a bit of a hairy beast this holiday season and you would like to trim down a little bit, if you want to shave those uh, those balls of yours or maybe shave anywhere else on your body, you can with Manscaped's Lawn Mower 3.0, the best grooming tool in the world on the market. Currently, it has 7,000 RPMs. Of blissful power and LED light, it is 90 minutes of battery life, and it is waterproof. And they are giving away a 20% off code this holiday season. If you use the code submission, isn't that right, Dennis? That's
2: right, Cass. Don't torture people in North South anymore with Manscape. You can shave down there and smell good at the same time. Make sure to dump on Manscape.com now. Use the code submission. Get 20% off. And free shipping today ahead of this holiday season.
0: Mm, That's right. And if you're the kind of person who likes to stream things on Netflix or Disney Plus or all sorts of other streaming services and you're like, you know what? I live in the States, but I wonder what Australian people are watching in their region. I wonder what, uh," or if you're in Australia and you're like, I wonder what US people have on their Netflix. You can change your region as well as surfing the internet uh, safely. With PureVPN, they have some great holiday deals at the moment, 88% off their regular prices. If you sign up for a five-year plan, it's only $1.32 a month. That is unbelievable savings. Uh, If you want to go a one-year plan, it's $4.16 a month. Or if you want to go casual, just a one-month plan, you can try it out, $10.95. And if you use the code SUBMISSION, it is an additional 10% off.
2: That's right, Cass. Watch the Ukrainian version of Elf where James Kahn beats up a bunch of people in a dark alley. Learn about the magic of neighbors and the mystique that is toady today. Go to purevpn.com forward slash submission. Use the code word submission. Get that extra 10% off and start watching now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All about the savings. Finally, Luca, uh, because I know you probably want to go and hang out with your daughter and stuff. One last one, and that is Kevin Holland. In a crazy turn of events, was whisked away from his bout against Jack Hansen after a bout of COVID, uh, which he told us he didn't feel any symptoms of, uh, and now he's in a bout against Array just one week later. Talk about the old uh, hot potato routine. What do you think of uh, his chances in this matchup? And also considering that he's won, you know, four in a row already. That's a body of work. Where do you think the win will sort of put him in in the division? Are you looking at Kevin Holland? At as a guy who could potentially be a title contender in the future or um, do you feel like there's there's just not enough data and do you think this Jacare fight can provide some for us
1: I actually think he's pretty talented I think there's probably an open question of how he might do um, to the extent Jacare is actually able to get this fight to the floor because even with his advanced age Jacare's athleticism is not certainly not what it once was Uh, his strength is still pretty decent it looks like um, But, you know, it, it, str- on the feet, I don't think Jacare can really win. I'll just sort of state that out loud. I mean, folks forget, dude. Joaquin Buckley had the most memorable single performance, right, with that uh, two-touch spinning back kick on um, uh, Kasanganai, right? Mm-hmm. But in August, Kevin Holland finished Joaquin Buckley with strikes. Mm. It's like folks don't even remember that. Like, dude, Kevin Holland's a bad dude, man. He can fight his ass off. So the only issue is we just don't know the full limits of his game on the feet. I don't think I'll say it again. I don't think Jacare can beat him. But the question is, can Jacare get the fight, uh, either press, you know, Holland against the fence. Can he get it to the floor? Can he keep it on the floor? You know, if this was five, six years ago, this would be the easiest fight in the world to call. But at this stage, Jacare, I think was coming off two losses in a row. The last one was not so bad, but it was boring as shit. The fight against Blachowicz. So again, that's to me, that's entirely what it hinges on is Holland championship material it's impossible to answer that question now but you beat a guy like Jacare, the question gets a little bit easier so i guess we're gonna have to see who is able to define the terms of the fight and honestly that's the best way to know either it's going to be Jacare, probably on the ground or it's going to be holland on the feet and may the best man win
2: a lot of questions to be answered this weekend, guys. Make sure to follow Luke on social media at l thomas news, of course, at morning combat. I believe that's a newer account. You guys can follow as well. Morning combat every Monday, 11am Eastern. That is 1am Tuesday nights here in Australia. Luke, we appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for finding some time to jump on with us. really, really, really enjoy every time you come into the program.
1: Uh, I always have time for you, fellas. Really appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk soon. Lots of love, Luke. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Thanks, man. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.